You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. Whole Foods Market creates win-win partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. Hot Bread Kitchen is a nonprofit, multi-ethnic bakery and job training program out of Manhattan whose range of international breads are as impressive as they are authentic. Learn more at hotbreadkitchen.org or visit one of our six Manhattan locations for a taste. Well, here we are. It's Sunday, right after Thanksgiving. We have uh, Nicole Taylor, the famous Nicole Taylor, host of Hot Grease, is going to be a guest today. And uh, how's it going, Jack? How was your Thanksgiving? It's good, man. Really good. What did you do? Did you overcook the turkey? I have to properly introduce myself. Hold on. Oh, okay. There we go. That's better. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had we had a really awesome, uh, what was it, about a nine-pound heritage turkey from you guys thank mm-hmm. you very much and i have to i have to call my mom and my family out here because it's like the very thing we fight against at this network you know we had six people for thanksgiving for the nine pound turkey which should be plenty and she found the need to go to the grocery store and buy another commodity uh turkey breast because she wanted more and leftovers and of course the heritage turkey was enough and there was this whole breast that was wasted you know Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the higher the quality of the food, the further it goes, you know, like, um, people are like, uh, at our heritage meat shop, they see $28 a pound for prosciutto and then they only need like 0.2 of a pound. Right. You know, so they they end up spending like $3 and 98 cents and it feeds like eight people an appetizer. It's really interesting what we view as like large amounts, you know, quantity versus quality. But um, so this is a short week on radio, right? Yeah, right into the week in review. And uh, kind of speaking of that theme, Mitchell Davis spoke about leftovers on his show on Wednesday. What did he say were good leftovers? Uh, he said one of the most challenging ones is pasta because people have differing opinions on how to cook leftover pasta do you you know do you keep the sauce separate do you keep it with the sauce and all this other stuff um but i mean what what are some of your favorite things to do with so mitchell davis is the author of uh, i mean he's the host of taste of the or no uh taste Taste matters Matters, right? right which broadcasts on wednesdays at 11 yes and uh he was talking all about leftovers who was his guest to talk about such a topic um looking right now his guest was because uh, leftovers is a really interesting. I guess I don't like leftovers. Nicole, how do you feel about leftovers? Um, I can take like one day of leftovers. Do you eat anything like Chinese food, pizza? I mean, um, can it be anything? Any leftovers? I can do it for one day only. Mm, interesting. I actually just don't like eating more of the same food. I think uh, now pasta is an exception because you can fry it and it gets end up being super crispy and super good. 
But um, pizza's better, I think, the next day sometimes. But anyway, yeah, leftover. I'm not a big leftovers fan. Um, I was joking with Anne's family, and they never ate leftovers. Or no, who was it? Larry Sorrell's family. They have eight kids, and they never had leftovers with eight kids. So mm. it ended up uh, being a weird thing for them, too. But uh, I feel like only in America do we prepare for leftovers, though, you know? Yeah, like that's really what you were world. saying with your mother, right? Yep. Buying the extra breasts. Exactly. Uh, so who else was on this week? Uh, so there were no Thursday shows, I take it, or did you come in Thursday to do no. Taste of the Past? No, I didn't. No, thank thankfully I was home on Thursday. Um, but yeah, we had a we had a show, a great beer sessions episode where they brought in a bunch of vintage beers, some of them from the seventies. It was from Ray Dieter's personal collection. His wife was uh, nice enough to give the guys some of those beers wow. for the holiday beer session. So it was nice to kind of remember Ray, and uh, they also had a kind of cool discussion on. Um, on vintage beers, because not many people realize that beers can be aged like wine, you know? Interesting, though. Would, did these beers have cork in them? Yes. Uh, some did, some didn't. Um, oh, really? So you can still age a beer even if it doesn't have a cork? Yeah, I'm going to play a clip from the show right now. Huh. Well, it's like wine. You know, certain wines are built for aging, and certain wines are not built for the same kind of aging, and you have to understand what properties you're looking at that have the potential for that. Yeah, and, and also the storage temperature, how frequently you move it. Of course. And I see people with regular crown caps, which is the standard opener uh, cap, and they lay them down on their side. You cannot do that because it'll pick up a metallic taste. Yeah, so, I mean, it was interesting. I got to taste one of those beers from the 70s, too, and I'll say it, it tasted like cigar in the best way possible. Interesting. Now, it's just so funny. I didn't think things could age, really, if they were just in a hermetically sealed bottle. But I guess they can, right? Yeah. They, they get better. They get, Do they get, like, looser? Yeah, the carbonation definitely goes away. It's <coughs> got more of a molasses syrupy kind of feel to it. But. So I heard there was another Mind Kitchen. Now, has that aired yet? Not yet. Yes. Right? My, well, the Mind Kitchen goes live now. It's the Matt and Rachel show. Right. Um, and sometimes they do a Mind Kitchen. And our very own Ann Sachs will be in Sophie Schlesinger 1, the Mind Kitchen. And now, what did they have to do? They had to improv something. Yes. So they? the Mind Kitchen here is uh, it's a game invented by Matt Timms. He gives you five ingredients. You have to come up with a three-course meal in your mind using a bare-bones kitchen. So the five ingredients he gave... Chicken was one, right? Yeah. It was potatoes, iceberg lettuce, chicken, carrots, and cheddar cheese. Oh, my God. So yes. uh, what was the uh, tip? What, what clip are you about to play? Was it the tipping point that made Ann win? Yeah. Well, Scott, first Rachel went. She had, uh, I don't even, I don't remember her dish. But Scott Gold did a chicken inside of a chicken inside of a chicken. It's like a turducken, but with all chicken. It's thrice kind of, kind chicken. Thrice chicken. And then here's Ann explaining her dish, followed by Matt announcing the winner. All right, so Team Cheese over here, you know, being cheese-centric, we decided that we were going to incorporate cheese into every part of our dish. Yeah. And there are so many tie-ins, actually. Okay, because you gave us boring ingredients. <laughs> yeah. So we were thinking, what is the most boring cuisine in the world? And it's probably British cuisine. And oh, they would hate yeah. you for that. They're all talking about how proud they are these days. I know. Cuisine, well, it's it gotten, does suck. It, may, it maybe has gotten better, and that is that might that. be true. But, you know, traditionally known as being very bad. And so we took it like, you know, Gulliver's Travels, like back in time style. And we are cooking for people, for a huge horde of yeah. people at the height of the British Empire. Like, Maybe oh, around like 1830. Good. You're throwing a party. Like yeah. medieval feast. <laughs> yeah. cool. Thousands of people. But I will say that you found your way to my heart by talking about Britain 
and frying chicken and eating French fries because that's normal stuff. But yum, oh my god, right? French fries! Anywho, <laughs> that's why you guys just won. What did you win? Ah. Oh, well, there you go. What did they win? Uh, nothing. <laughs> and uh, how is the Rachel, uh, Matt and Rachel show? How are they uh, going? Because they had each had individual shows, right? She had had an edible Brooklyn one. Yeah, it's cool. It's a happy medium between the two. They um, get along? Yeah, we, we did have to make fun of Matt on air, though, because he came here bragging about getting a gig with McDonald's for a commercial. So we had to kind of set him in his place. What does that mean? He wrote it? No, he's, he's like the radio voice for a commercial. It was actually a Thanksgiving con- commercial from McDonald's where they're selling like a 50 piece of nuggets as a Thanksgiving meal. It was pretty disgusting. 50 pieces of nuggets. Well, in the old days, you know, people used to cater their wedding- weddings with McDonald's. You know, it was oh, such God. like a new phenomenon. But um, anyway, and so, well, that's interesting. Well, congratulations to Ann Sachs. We'll be cutting the curd. Um, <clears throat> now, what's this last one? This last one on the weekend review sounds very, very troubling. Yeah, the counterfeiting. Um, so on Unfiltered, Brian DeMarco had his friend Justin on, and they were talking about a big problem in China where they're counterfeiting uh, labels of wine, You know, filling it obviously with other wine, then re-exporting it out. So it's, it seems like this is not too uncommon in China with other things as well. I mean, we've covered the honey thing in China on this network as well. Hmm. Where they're, you know, it's not even real honey, some other product, and they're labeling it as honey and sending it back to us. So, yeah, did they troubling. talk about how it's like being kind of uh, regulated or anything like that? Well, yeah, we're ju- they're just kind of figuring these things out. So I'm not sure about the regulation, but we do know it's a problem. It's funny because I mean, you know, American companies rip off names and terms all the time, you know, and that's okay because they're seeking profits. They're businessmen, you know. And True. then, uh, you know, when it happens in China, everyone's like, that's outrageous. Yeah. Well, very interesting. So, yeah, it was a short week, but, uh, you know, good job doing the week in review. Anything else, Jack? Yeah. Well, beer, beer Fest, that's what's else. Oh, really? What else? Well, tell us. Next oh, Sunday, Roberta's is hosting Beer Fest. That, the that second was, uh, annual Beer Fest. A big industry party last year, and we're competing, right? Uh, Yes. They have been very happy to do know that they've done away with the tricycle relay race. Thank God. Um, it's now a wheelbarrow race, and that's oh uh, a lot easier. Jack, you know, as the founder of the station, uh, I will be driving the wheelbarrow. You will have to be in it. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I'm skinny. I'm light. That's okay. It should be good. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to take a uh, short break, and uh, we will come back with the great Nicole Taylor of Hot Grease. And I didn't know what to do You packed all your things And gave me your ring Said, honey, I'm leaving for good I'll never know why You tell me goodbye And leave me so lonely and blue For you should have no reason to go For darling, I've always been true Tell me why 
All right. Well, welcome to into the studio. Did you have any trouble finding the place, Nicole? Ha. No. It's a Sunday and I uh, you know, it's really crowded here. No yeah. problems. Good, good. So give us major headlines, Thanksgiving. What major did you head- do? Oh, what did I do? You didn't do gravy, right? You did dressing. Oh man, I had a disaster. I rare no, I actually had two disasters. One I was able to cover up. So I got a heritage, a nine pound heritage turkey. And uh, for folks who are listening, if you cook the heritage turkey, you know you don't get all that funky mucus and fat, uh, which is a good thing. But uh, my gravy was a fail, Patrick. What happened? Where did you go wrong? I needed to. I needed more fat. Mm. So and anyway, turkeys, uh, heritage birds don't give as much. Fat. Exactly. So uh, I remember. I try. I thought I remembered that last year. So anyway, no gravy. Oh well. So now, uh, and then you made traditional like stuffing. And so you mentioned stuffing. I made dressing. Dressing instead, all together, no stuffing. Yes, the difference between dressing. I talked about that on my last show. Uh, dressing has eggs, so it's more. It's like together, uh, almost like a casserole. Same ingredients, but together. So I made dressing, um, pecan sage dressing. I use Etna Lewis's recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made homemade cranberry ginger sauce, um, braised collard greens. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else did I have? Oh, I made two um, sweet potato bourbon pies. Mm. I used King County's bourbon. Um, and like this cream cheese pie with like a cranberry sauce on top. It was a great Thanksgiving. And you do all the cooking. Everyone else is out of I, the kitchen. I did all the I did all the cooking. Oh yeah, I made a gratin, which everyone you know, it's like it tastes like mac and cheese. I made a root vegetable gratin. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So uh, now you had a heritage bird for Thanksgiving. Do you recommend to your friends and peers and colleagues like, hey, bet get heritage or are you just like get a locally raised broad breasted white? Oh, hell no. Hell no. I wouldn't tell anyone to get a, a, a butter ball or whatever. I would say with hands down, without a doubt, to get a heritage turkey. It's once a year. I mean, to spend a few extra dollars once a year What's the big de- what's the big deal? I feel like you can you can uh kind of skim back on some other things and buy a heritage bird. It's a the flavor is great. You don't have to do a lot. You don't have to brine. Mm-hmm. You just basically do a great butter rub and you're getting like delicious healthy um meat. It's interesting. There was an article in today's uh New York Times Sunday magazine, New York Times, and it had a uh a picture of a bulldog on it. And mm-hmm. it showed all the problems wrong with that bulldog. It was a big face of a bulldog. And it showed his tooth was off. And yeah. it showed his eye couldn't see. He had arthritis. And it, it was like literally yeah. the cover was 50 things. And then I read one of their big captions in the article. And they said that worse than puppy mills and worse than like pit bull dog fighting is the kind of inbreeding that is going on. It's actually worse for the for dogs the inbreeding that goes on, the genetic manipulation for a look or for a certain trait, like a large amounts of white breast meat. So it's just interesting to think that genetic manipulation is actually the cruelest form of animal treatment. Yeah. Hey, folks, who wants a uh, artificially inseminated turkey? So, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, they should have sex, right, if they're going to Pretty die. much. Now, let me ask. I, I don't know uh, the right way to phrase this question, but, um, you know... Kim Severson wrote an article uh, this Thanksgiving saying, you know, absolutely heritage is not worth it by, a, you know, a broad breasted white. 
Um, you know, Michael Pollan has said to me, you know, personally a few times, you know, well, yours is an elitist movement, you know, and, and that is separate from, you know, what he's trying to do. And um, I it's always stuck stuck to me why, you know, certain people should be told or it should be believed that they, the quality shouldn't they shouldn't have access to it or it's just too expensive in the first place to even consider when you know sometimes it's universally agreed upon that it's the best tasting food you know like if it's the best turkey in in the country why would you tell certain people oh it's not the best it's a waste of money um like how do you feel about this whole elitist uh argument you know and and what it means to quality and food access so I, I did go home uh, over the weekend and read the the um, little blog entry on New York Times Dining that Kim Severson wrote. I'm a fan of Kim Severson. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love all her writing. She's I love her book. She's based in Atlanta. She's based in ATL. She's doing a g- lot of great stories about Atlanta and the South in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what she said in the article, she was trying to make good meat accessible to people so she kind of didn't say anything or made you know a few made one one sentence comment about the heritage turkey uh and saying oh yeah you don't really need that so uh, i see that she was trying to make it more accessible uh michael pollan i'm gonna say it on air sorry i am not a fan of michael pollan this is probably the first time publicly i've said this but i'll say i'm not a fan he is teaching a class at uc berkeley with um Nikki Henderson, who's the executive director of the People's Grocery, and a few other people. And you can actually watch online um, the lectures. And so they were talking about food access, and Michael Pollan does not feel that there's a structural problem in terms of food access, um, meaning that poor people or disadvantaged people um, make choices. And that it, it's not about elitism that folks have a choice and they can make a choice if they want to to buy a heritage turkey. I completely disagree. And I think even him having that attitude sets the tone for him to be an elitist person in the food world. Uh-huh. To believe, So describe, break it down. So what is he saying and why do you disagree? He is saying that if you live in, say, for instance, my neighborhood Bed-Stuy, that... Um, there is not a structural reason why none of the grocery stores have a heritage turkey or you can go to one of the corner markets and buy organic fruit or flour that may come from King Arthur. Mm-hmm. He's saying that that's the structural. You mean like distribution, things uh, like a distribution nature? policy. Um, when I say structure, that's what I mean. Um, the people who are making the decisions. He's saying that that doesn't exist. I completely disagree. I completely disagree. Um, and what do you think it is? I think that it is. It's all about. It's all about the structural things. I mean, the Whole Foods is not going to come to. I love Whole Foods, but it's the, not going to open in Bed Stuy, for not, instance. Exactly. Uh, it's not going to open in Bed Stuy um, unless they see that the income is there. So is he creating a kind of all things are equal and it's just a choice thing versus saying that there could be everything from institutionalized uh, prejudice all the way down to just like people deciding against uh, his readings, his comments over the years suggest, in my opinion, a very elitist view of 
you can make your own choices. I don't care if, if your neighborhood is full of McDonald's and you have the highest concentration of fast food spots in the nation. Uh, he discounts that. And mm-hmm. I think that that's not fair. Um, if you walk every day by KFC and all these other places, I mean, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. You, that's what you're going to eat. And then if you don't have other choices in your neighborhood, to me, it's all about structural um the system. Yeah, infrastructure. System. Yeah, and the people. And the, we'll talk a little bit about Occupy Wall Street in a bit. But, um, you know, the whole thing is, yeah, if someone's poor, they should also be told to thanks uh, Heritage Turkey's the best. There's nothing totally. wrong. And the fact that that's $10 a pound, that still should be something they strive for. It should be still a fact that they know. It shouldn't be something they dispute. And nobody, especially who writes for the Times or something like that, should themselves decide that that issue isn't important, is, is not important for poor people to know about. They're like, those people are poor, so we will have a different set of... Um, a different set of ways that we judge them. You know, there'll be different rights and wrongs for poor people. And if the heritage turkey or the locally organic grown vegetable is better, then everybody needs to be told it's better. If that's a fact, then that's what it is. And at the end of the day, it's about money and marketing. I mean, Mm -hmm. no one really, it's easier for McDonald's and other brands to market to, you know, communities of color, communities that don't have a ton of money. So they'll market BS, and, you know, other large companies or other companies that are doing great food typically are small. They don't have the budgets to be able to do um, marketing. So it's small. It's small things that um, people like Pollen and Kim Severson can do to re- basically get the message out to the masses. Mm-hmm. So I do feel like if you're in a, in a position of power and you're talking about food and people look at you as the voice of the food movement it's very important at every breath that you talk about the small producers like Heritage Foods USA mm-hmm. and all the folks around the country and in Brooklyn that are doing great stuff around uh, food, good food. Yeah, it's just, um, you know, in Europe and in Carlo Petrini, who founded Slow Food, he was always talking about quality. That's what people need because like a quality prosciutto, you only need a quarter of a pound and it fills the whole family up. Quality is also not always an opinion. Like some prosciuttos are just better than others. And even though one person or 10 people might like the weird one, if it's just an established great prosciutto or great cheese, for instance, like Anne will tell you, that cheese is not that good, you know, and it's trying and it can get there, but it's just not that good. And that is a truth. It's a, you know, gastronomy is like psychology or like uh, sociology. It's a, it's a science of sorts and there's rights and there's wrongs. And that's just a fact. And so I think it's actually very, I don't know what the word is, you know, socio, you know, it's very prejudiced against people. Oh, it's semi-racist. It's semi-racist, you know, just to say, classes. oh, oh, for you you the broad-breasted no it's for the whole world the heritage if you can afford it if but to pretend that that's not true i've never really understood judging people on a curve or treating them differently just because they're poor i mean they should be called the same thing and you know everyone is just striving for them to have the iphone and and uh, you know to travel and to wear right. nice clothes why all of a sudden with food is it 
outrageous well, to I think s- about spending $70 for a 15-pound turkey. I will say my colleagues in the good food movement, we talk a lot, and I'll say we. Uh, I try not to do this, but we talk a lot about wanting change, and we want mass change, but as soon as a little bit of that comes out, we, we trip out. I mean, I'm not a fan of Walmart. I said it a million times on Hot Grease, uh, but if they want to bring heritage birds to the masses... Isn't that what we want? That is what we want. Now, let me ask, is there food quality in your neighborhood? Um, I live in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, for folks who are listening or not in, in Brooklyn. I mean, it's probably one of the cultural meccas for black folks in actually the the, the, the country. It's becoming a very gentrified neighborhood. Uh, there are tons of great restaurants that are opening. You and I were talking earlier about Saragina Pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Do or Dine. There are a lot of places that are selling local food. But in terms of shopping... Um, there is not a place to shop. The only grocery store in Bed-Stuy is Food Town. They do sell organic products mm-hmm. or products that um, you wouldn't normally find uh, in just a traditional food town. But I will tell you, uh, it's like a dollar, two dollars more. What the heck? You know, I mean, it's like... But would it be $2 more at the Whole Foods? Of course not. Uh-huh. So they... Because that actually supports your infrastructure, your structure talk. Exactly. Because there's no structure, so therefore it's out of whack with the rest of the country in terms of, you know, how high it should be cost. So if you have a family of four and you want to go to Food Town because you don't want to trek way to lower Manhattan to, to Whole Foods... And you want to go to Food Town and pick up your stuff. Well, I mean, you're going to spend, if you buy, say, almond milk because your kids are lactose intolerant, you want to buy King Arthur flour, you want to buy some organic fruit, you're going to be paying like 8 to $9 more than what you would pay at Whole Foods. Yeah. $9, you can buy like some meat or something. <laughs> so do people eat badly in Bed-Stuy for the most part? I would say no. I would say that Park Slope Food Co-op, which is a co-op, one of the nation's largest co-ops in the country, um, over 3,000 members of the co-op live in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Huh. So you have 3,000 people going outside of the neighborhood to shop at a co-op that has great food at a very reasonable price. What about CSAs, farmers markets? I mean, how is that penetrated? And not just your neighborhood, but other, you know, neighborhoods that uh, are not, you know, on the in midtown Manhattan, for instance. I would say if you look at neighborhoods all across the country that are similar to Bedford-Stuyvesant, you'd be surprised to see that there are CSAs. There's a CSA in my neighborhood that's been around seven years. Other neighborhoods across the country, um, that folks think people don't want fresh fruit or vegetables. They have successful CSAs and farmers markets. Um, they just don't get a lot of publicity or people mm-hmm. are not writing a lot of articles about them. And they have, you know, 100, 200 people that are buying food uh, or getting food every single week or every month. Hmm. Well, very interesting. So uh, I know we're going to come back after the short break and talk about Occupy and food. And I want to ask you, Nicole, what you think they should be fighting for. Occupy, okay, yeah. And then we'll talk about hot grease and then we'll cut to a clip of an old farmer from Kansas. And I will only tell you one more time than you know that I'm never gonna tell you again.
All right. So tell us, Occupy, where, by, by the way, this is the main course. We're engineered and produced by Jack Inslee. I'm Patrick Martins. We're broadcasting out of Roberta's live, 261 Moore Street, unless this is being listened to later, then it's not live. But uh, Before Occupy Wall Street, I have to ask you guys, did, yeah. you, did you buy anything for Black Friday? Uh, I did the small business Saturday. What's that? Awesome. The shop small Saturday. Cool. I, uh, you know, Black Friday, it's just uh, the whole, um, you know, that's also a big employees thing. People talk about how big companies treat their employees, like forcing your employees to get there at midnight for what? Best Buy needs to do what on Black Friday? Come on. They can they can open at 9 a.m. like everything else. They'll still probably make $50 billion profit. I don't know. It just seems upsetting. Those poor workers. Yeah, I worked retail I don't all during college and even as an adult part-time. It sucks. It's just like a marketing mechanism to to create a frenzy of purchasing. Also, wasn't Black Friday originally like when people would buy their Christmas gifts and then hide them for a full month? Yes. Who hides gifts for a month anymore? You know, it just seems uh, like it just seems bad all around, you know, and I actually don't think that the economy is judged or, or depends on that one single day. Well, supposedly that was the day that the what? The big retail folks went in the black. That was the day that they made all their money mm. on that Friday. I don't well, think that's one thing deal. we can all agree on, this has been a Turkvember to remember. Um, but uh, let's talk about Occupy and big food, talking about corporations and that. I mean, that's been a big, uh, you've been one of the big proponents of uh, getting the voices of Occupy Wall Street onto Heritage Radio Network, uh, especially as it relates to food. So tell us a little bit. You had one of the chefs on, right? So I had Amy Hamburger on the show. I mean, that was like as soon as Occupy Wall Street happened um, a few weeks after. It's a great interview. The Tons of people came to the, the site and retweeted it on Twitter. Um, so Amy came on to talk about how they're feeding people. Um, and so after the show, I went down to Occupy Wall Street to try to see Amy in the flesh. I didn't meet her, but I was there two hours just observing them giving food away and i took tons of pictures i will say that there are a lot of homeless people and people who are hungry getting food at occupy wall street there was a lot of big food down there in terms of peanut butter granola bars but there are also folks bringing like carrots fresh fruits and vegetables Mm -hmm. um i think i've been very vocal on the show and outside of the show and even on Twitter uh, and Facebook because I've retweeted and made did a little commentary about Occupy Wall Street. I think that Occupy Wall Street is a very young movement. I think that mainstream America um, supports what they're doing, but people are confused because it seems like right before Thanksgiving, it turned into fuck Bloomberg, you know, that they just got away from the whole thing that they were striving to do, which is the folks to think small in terms of business and who you support. And it was all about, we're going to get Bloomberg. So I was turned off by that. Cause I'm like, okay, Bloom- you thought they were misguided. I think that they're a young movement and they're trying to figure it out and they're using the approach of we don't have a leader. Um, We want people who are a part of the movement to make decisions. I mean, if you've seen their assembly and how they make decisions, it's a very slow process. As a person who's an activist and who's worked in nonprofit, I get it. I get what they're doing. But I think for them to bring in mainstream America they are going to have to really, really have a um, a list of demands or suggested mm-hmm. things. Well, um, I always say all good ideas 
or killed by committees. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it's like this is a voice, a movement of the people. So what would be some of the three or four things that you would put top of the list of demands for Occupy Food? I would say small. I mean, we mentioned CSAs before. I think that the CSA model being replicated and, and, and government putting more money, um, particularly if you look at the farm bill, let's let's get into the farm bill and uh, pick out some demands from there, such as supporting CSAs and farmers markets and putting more money. So communities uh, that don't have them will be able to have them. That's first. I don't I didn't see anything in their demands, their original demands about the farm bill. Yeah, well, the farm bill, and then, well, what about this? Like, let's say one of their demands was that big companies have to treat their animals humanely, and, like, they all, all companies have to be certified humane or better. Um, let's say, would, and that increase the price of, uh, you know, meats by a dollar a pound. I mean, would that be a good thing, or would that be a disaster? I think it would be a good thing, but I'm going to be realistic. We know that, I mean, if you follow food policy uh, and ag policy, uh, what's the... Are we being realistic that that could happen? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, meat, the lobbyists for meat, they're huge. It, can we do something smaller? I'm thinking let's go small, try to mm-hmm. make demands that are very small and that can impact people on a local level instead of going that big. But maybe you can think, maybe they can think broadly and, and do something like that. Were you inspired? Did you feel that the issues that you take on day in and day out in your work and also week in, week out at Heritage Radio? I mean, do you see Occupy Wall Street being a viable change maker for all those issues? I think Occupy Wall Street is a viable model for people who want to make changes in their community. Um, Because I feel like change happens on a local level. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't, I'm not inspired by the loosey goosey, um, the loosey, yeah, the loosey goosey. We're just down here drumming on drums. I'm all for that. I think that's great. (laughs) You're like, I have nothing against drums. No, I love drums. I mean, but (laughs) at the end of the day, when I went down there, it, it was like, Oh, God. And maybe because I'm an activist and I've always worked in nonprofits. So I've been doing the work like hands on and also the strategic piece. And I know how long it takes to get an idea out and happen and make things happen. But I'm inspired by what this big movement can inspire in local communities and small communities all over the country to really create change, not just to say we're mad and we're protesting and we want to change. We are the 99%, but we are the 99% and this is what we're going to do. Mm, very interesting. So, um, well, let's talk about, uh, as we wrap up, I mean, hot grease then and now. Are you uh, on your 88th episode? Oh, really? Is it eight? I know I'm coming up on 100. I am. Jack, I'm, what is it? What's, uh, let's go to the videotape. Fact checker. Yep, we're going. Hold on. Uh, Next episode will be episode 90. 90. Oh, wow. So wow. 10 shows. You know what? I, I must have missed one along the way. You, uh, Sorry, I, I thought you only did 88. I must say I am truly grateful to come into the studio at, uh, at Roberta's, the Garden of Roberta's, every Monday at 3.30, and to do the show. I mean, I'm grateful to you, Patrick, and to Jack for giving me the opportunity to talk about food politics and also to talk about lighter things on Hot Grease. Southern food, biscuits. Um, red velvet cake, our oh, top yeah. rated show of all time. Yeah, red velvet cake. I, I mean, I love uh, being able to bring folks in the studio who are not the the big name Michael mm-hmm. Pollins, but folks who are doing 
work in their small community who are, ma- are making jam or uh so i'm excited now um how has it changed from two years ago to oh today like have you how have you gotten better what do you focus on now what don't you do or what do you do like oh i was about- su- i sucked the first 10 shows you didn't know that patrick I thought you were pretty good. <laughs> oh, my God. Jack was outraged that he had to sit through those first oh 10 shows. Oh, my God. The first 10 shows. Quit. I was so nervous because I have a southern twang. I mispronounced words, and I was just so nervous. I remember I came in here. Michael Crupain was my first guest, and I had a glass of wine, and I was so nervous. And then I know what you're going to say. Then you listened to the main course a few times and you felt inspired. Exactly. You were like, wow, I'm not exactly. that bad. I was like, listen, that's when you were had you had a two hour show then. Oh, brother. You had two hours. I would, I, I listened to quite a few of the shows and Saxelby. Um, it's probably the show that I've been listening to the longest. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Anne's show. Who else do I listen to? I listen to the main course. There's so many great shows. But now, what is now. you? What are you trying to do? What would you say you've done? So you've kind of given voice to with, people that are often without overlooked. Without a doubt, I tell people after they leave the hot grease on Heritage Radio Network that we have the magic dust. We sprinkle the magic dust on them because I feel like when people come through here, they leave and then they're like, oh, they're on Martha Radio next. They're in the Times. They Mm -hmm. just blow up. I look at Allison Cave. She's the owner of First Prize Pies. Her mom owns Ronnie Sue Chocolates in SS Market. Mm -hmm. And she came in here. Literally, she had just won a pie contest. She was not like in the Times a million times. She came in hot grease and next thing you know, I mean, she's big. She's on mm-hmm. everything now. And it's so many other stories like that. So I feel like um, young ent- food entrepreneurs, they come to hot grease and they get to It's like a launching pad. Now, is that a threat? Like, have you ever been acknowledged by some of those other media sources as like we first heard it on Hot Grease? Hell no. Yeah, HRN does not get very (laughs) much respect from, you know, the bigger radio groups out there. Although I do think they must look at us as a kind of uh, pulse on the... Without a doubt. I mean, I would have to say, Patrick, I'm going to have to pat myself on the back. Mm -hmm. I'm probably one of the only hosts that was on Twitter at first. Wouldn't you agree, Jack? True. Absolutely true. And so uh, all the big name food networks, not food networks, but I will say the VP of digital at Food Network, she was on Hot Grease. They all listen to Heritage Radio Network. They know us and they listen to Hot Grease. And even down when you were in Atlanta, right? Bill Uh, Harris and all those people, they seemed to know what was going on on this network. Yeah, I was at the Southern Foodway Alliance down in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm -hmm. John T. Edge has been on the network a million times. But yeah, I mean, these are people from all over the country who are writing about Southern food. Um, so it was like what 500 people there they I mean they're like oh yeah Heritage Radio Network we know Heritage everyone knows us yeah it's interesting yeah now how would you mobilize all that energy I mean do you think uh, it's just yeah. like uh, stars in, in the sky I mean how can you turn those random stars into like a constellation that has a real you know forward thinking message um, I mean I have a few ideas I think that um one of the things is I hate to always be talking about, uh, you know, people of color, but there are a lot of people of color who otherwise do not get any press. I think it's important to have a collective. So one of the ways to make all the stars align, I would love to do a collective of folks around the country um, who are of color Um to do a food collective, what you're doing, all one website. So mm-hmm. if you're interested in spreading the word about your hair, your turkeys, and you want all these folks around the country that are doing food work to know about it, 
you could just go on this food collective and and mm-hmm. say, hey, this is my thing. Who's your guest this week? Do you know yet? Yes. My guest this week is the author of Tipsy Vegan. Mm. It is a book all about... I would be tipsy too if I was a vegan. Yeah. I'm drinking all the time. I don't know why they have vegan in the title because essentially it's a book all about uh, foods with booze in it. Oh. Well, vegan is not a cuisine. It's just an idea. You know, exactly. it's like uh, vegetarianism. There's no cuisine there. Indian food. That's a cuisine, yeah, and it concentrates on vegetarianism. But to it's say a marketing vegan, word, and I always remember telling Alice Waters, uh, you know, when people would uh, be when they would ask her, and I was there, oh, uh, oh, yours, your food grew out of the hippie movement. She'd be like, no, 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 hippie food is. A hippie is a guy with long hair exactly. who smokes weed. That has nothing to do with shape panisse, you know. Yeah. Like, even though it might have grown out of a counter revolution movement, like their aim is gastronomy. So I'll have to say, so he's going to be on the show, and I just want to shout out a few other people. Natalie Dupree is going to be on the show um, in December. The if the Natalie Dupree, I grew up looking looking at her on huh. public TV. That's she big. has a great book, Southern Biscuits. That's out. Sonara Weathers is going to be on the show talking about Kwanzaa. Um, when yeah. is Kwanzaa this year? Kwanzaa is the same time every year. It's the 26th through the 1st. 26th through the 1st. So Always. it's like a Hanukkah. You guys... Uh, I'm not going to say it's like a Hanukkah. It's like seven days of gift giving. If you, Yeah. That's not about gift, the extent. But it's not gift giving. Oh. Yeah. It's not gift giving. So you will... We'll I need de- to learn more about Kwanzaa. That's we'll interesting. We'll demystify it. Oh, very good. We'll demystify it. Uh, so I'm excited about December. A lot of stuff about the holidays. A mixologist is coming on the show. Okay. Um, then we have our holiday party, the HRN holiday party. I know. Yeah. December 8th. I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, well, uh, this has been a uh, post-Thanksgiving uh extraordinary show and uh, we're going to actually had a we had a very interesting guest in the studio as people might know heritage foods usa is a uh, company that moves 20 tons of pork a week from about 40 family farms and larry sorrell is one of those farmers and he has organized a coalition of 14 amish farms to raise rare and heritage breeds for our network and the chefs that buy from us. So uh, he was in studio. He had never been to New York before. I I think he'd probably only left uh, Glasgow County uh, a a couple times in his whole life. So it was really cool to see him here. We took him to Fatty Crab. He ate, uh, he came to the Essex Market and toured all the stands there. So I think he had a great time. But here is a little lens into a uh, 70 year old farmer who raises the best proteins on the planet. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Jack. Well, we're really happy to have uh, in studio uh, two of our favorite farmers, Larry and Madonna Sorrell, and their two sons, Jacob and Nathan, two of eight. So uh, how's it going, Larry? Thanks so much for coming to Brooklyn. It's going really good. Have you been mugged yet? Not yet. (laughs) I'm not looking forward to it. If you guys could see Larry, he is uh, got a long white and gray beard, uh, black cowboy hat. And, uh, you know, he definitely looks like he's not from these parts. But uh, anyway, it's um, how do you like New York? I mean, have you been here before? Uh, first time. It's different. Where are you, where were you born? You were born your whole life in the Kansas area? Right. <clears throat> I, I've been born and raised in the same county. 
Same county the whole time. Oh, which oh, one is that? Cloud County in, in Kansas. Is that near Salina? And it's about forty minutes north of Salina. And uh, what's the ter- you know environment out there? Give uh, our uh, listeners a sense of well, what that county <clears throat> is like. We have a uh, really uh, real real estate and mostly wheat and corn, Milo. And it's generally flat there, right? Pretty much, yeah. Now, Western Can- or Eastern Kansas has one of the richest soils in the world, right? I mean, the Flint Hills, and I hear a lot about just the great agriculture soil out there. Is South- that true? Southeast Kansas has really good soil, yes. Southeast Kansas. And what about where you are? What kind of uh, soil are you farming We're on? Sandy loam. Sandy loam? Is that the best? Or no, is- it's, it's good. It's good. And tell us what you raise, Larry. We raise red wattle hogs. How did you go about and get so many of the, so high a percentage of red bottle genetics? Well, we started out with two gilts and a boar and just totally got out of hand. (laughs) And um, tell us, uh, well, Madonna, are you going to come on here at all? We got to have Madonna on. She is the mother of eight children, two of which are here. What numbers are you guys? Five. I'm uh, third from the bottom. Third from the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Madonna, so uh, eight babies, is that true? Nine. We have nine. nine. Eight boys and one girl. But you're done now, right? Oh, yes. I've been done for a long time. (laughs) So um, tell us about you, Madonna. Where were you born? And tell us a little bit about the towns you grew up in. I was born in Salina, Kansas. And uh, totally, most of my life raised in Cloud County, too. Now, Salina, Kansas is a very interesting town. They have a lot of museums out there. Uh, They have a kind of little boardwalk with, like, clothing stores and all that. It's a very nice town. Yes, it is. Very nice shopping area. How has it changed over the past uh, few decades? Oh, it it has gotten quite a bit bigger. Um, It's one of the kind of busiest towns in Kansas uh, for population and shopping. Okay. And uh, what aspect of the farm do you mostly work on? I mean, by the way, you're my favorite chef of all the farms and slaughterhouses that we visit each year. You, It's always your pies and your simple foods are, are, are the best. Um, but tell us, besides cooking so well, what, what are your primary tasks on the farm? I'm uh, probably what you would consider the second hard man. Second hard man. And it's not a good paying job. Not a good paying job, but Larry loves you for it, I'm sure. <laughs> he better. <laughs> so um, now you guys don't just run a single farm. You run a network of farms. So can you explain a little bit about how that idea of a group dynamic works in okay. agriculture in the States? Okay, I've I've got uh, several people that uh, raise red wild hogs for me, and I... Uh, I pick them up and sell them for them through Heritage Foods, and uh, and then uh, so and then 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 you then in turn go and pay those guys right, for their work, and right. you work a lot with Amish people, is that right? Hundred percent. And uh, how are they as a culture? I mean, it takes a long time to enter in and be accepted by that group, right? Very, very long time. You have to earn their trust. And how do you earn it? Do you show up at their church every Sunday? No, or? no. You uh, you just have to be honest and do what you say you're going to do, and and uh, eventually, 
eventually they'll they'll be your friends and very very interesting and uh who is uh you've created this unbelievable network now and uh they're all purebred pigs i mean are they registered with the various groups out there or do you kind of do your own self-registering uh, mostly our our self-registering our our uh, ones that we do our paperwork's on our old spots awesome. all our old spots are papered but other than that we we uh, have our own bloodlines on the rest mm-hmm. and uh, you raised some turkeys this year after a while yeah we raised a few turkeys this year uh standard bronze turkeys because we had originally met through turkeys right and then the pig thing happened right. second right eight years ago we we met at uh good shepherd ranch wow two presidential elections ago <laughs> yeah it's a long time um well uh i love it that you're uh, such a good strong democrat within the farming network no just kidding i always wonder i think everyone's republican it's funny i work with all republicans which is funny ironic being from the city wearing orange pants but um anyway uh thank you so much larry for coming on uh i'm really happy you got to see this place and thanks for all you do not just for those farmers but for us and all those chefs and uh, we should have you back on to call in and tell us what you think of all these weird restaurants <laughs> and what they're doing with your uh, Red Bottle pork. Well, thank you, Patrick. Enjoyed being here. Very good. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.